This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Tom Needenfuhrer. Tom Needenfuhrer, pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles, card number 242. Okay, 242. I'm pulling this up on the Jumbotron here, David, and this is this may be the goofiest card that we've seen in quite some time. We've seen some real goofballs, but I think this takes the cake. We have Tom Needenfuhrer, a pitcher, and for his his special photo here, taken for his baseball card, He's kind of mugging for the camera and pretending that he's catching a soft toss to him while he's standing over by the people in the stands. This looks like it's early before a game, and he's close enough to the stands that you can really make out several of the people in the stands. Like You could definitely point them out and say, oh yeah, you know, that's Jim. That's his brother Stan with him. I can tell because of the, the raglan top that he's wearing. Oh, right behind Tom Needenfuhrer's buttocks looks like that's actor Billy Zopka who played Johnny <laughs> in the in the Karate Kid and the Cobra Kai series. He's in danger of being devoured by Tom Needenfuhrer's behind. <laughs> I really think that's him. The hair. It could be a young Robert Redford. So I don't think that Robert Redford was this young in 1987. <laughs> Or hanging out. I think this is in Detroit, maybe. All these guys in the stands are somebody's uncle. Oh, yeah. They're definitely a bunch of uncles. No doubt. Hanging out at a day game behind Tom Needenfuhr. Everyone in the stands has a mustache. Tom Needenfuhr's got a mustache. He actually looks really good in this shot because he's kind of looking up. It's The lighting is really good. This has one of those 3D, a good 3D look oh. about it in front of the Orioles. His mustache is a little bit, I don't know, he looks kind of like maybe he's a magician. He also has this surprised look on his face. Kind of looks like Principal Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's a really good card. Very nice. Going to the back, Tom Needenfuhr, 242, 6 foot 5, 224 pounds, right-handed thrower and batter. Signed by the Dodgers in 1980 as a free agent. Born August 13th, 1959 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, and a home in Pacific Palisades, California. This name is very German. I couldn't figure out exactly what it means. Uh, my German skills are not up to par. It, it could have been changed at Ellis Island. It, I, I'm not entirely sure what this means. It, in looking through maybe just some translations, trying to figure out how this word could be used, I typed in Tom ist Niedenfuhr, and it said... Tom is sad. Oh, no. But it also could mean, like, down low. So I'm not entirely sure any uh, people with better German language skills than mine write in. Tom Niedenfuhr, born in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. That's a suburb of Minneapolis and a heavily Jewish suburb of Minneapolis. Some of the, the folks from there include the Coen brothers. And the city is featured in the great movie, A Serious Man, with Michael Stuhlberg, whose his connection to baseball is that he played 
Arnold Rothstein in Boardwalk Empire. Arnold Rothstein, famous for being connected with the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Tom didn't live in St. Louis Park very long. His family moved to Pennsylvania, later to Washington State, where he grew up in Redmond, Washington. Redmond, Washington, home of Microsoft and Ray Quinones' favorite Nintendo of America. (laughs) Tom went to Redmond High School. Other alumni of Redmond High School include Kerry Brownstein from Portlandia, as well as Slater Keeney and Wild Flag. Also podcaster Mike Duncan. Matt, I'm not sure. Do you listen to either the History of Rome podcast or the Revolutions podcast? I don't either. He seems very ambitious. Uh, you know, let's see him do 792 baseball cards, though. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He seems to have gone through, like, every single revolution that's ever happened, as well as the entire history of Rome. Uh, maybe I should listen to that. And also from Redmond High School, Steve Weeby from the 2007 documentary The King of Kong in which Steve uh, becomes the high-score champion in the Donkey Kong arcade game. Steve's performance as a Donkey Kong champion earned him an Allen and Ginter card in 2009. The year before, his nemesis, Billy Mitchell, also had a card. Billy Mitchell, he looks like he was could have been in the 1988 top set. This... Uh, long-haired, bearded, American flag-tie-wearing video gamer. I highly recommend watching The King of Kong to find out why Billy Mitchell is. He's he's all of our nemesis. <laughs> he later was busted for cheating in Donkey Kong and other video games and had many of his records revoked. The sticky stuff, probably he used the sticky stuff. <laughs> Sticky stuff on the joystick or on the A and B button. Either one. <laughs> we all had cheats for track and field. Let's not let's let's not fool anybody if you if you played that game and got anywhere on it. It required cheating, basically. But that but a great movie. King of Kong, highly recommended. Tom Neenfer was a standout player at Redmond High School, good enough to get drafted by the Dodgers in the thirty sixth round in nineteen seventy seven. He didn't sign. He instead opted to go to Wazoo, Washington State University, and he played for legendary coach Bobo Brayton. At Washington State, Tom's teammate was Paul Nochi. His coach was Chuck Bobo Brayton, who coached the Cougars from 1962 to 1994. He won 1,162 games, passed away in 2015 in the Cougar Stadium, which Bobo helped build in the early 80s is now named Bailey Brayton Stadium after him and his his mentor predecessor, Buck Bailey. And when I say he helped build it, they actually took parts of the original Seattle Pilots Stadium, which was called Six Stadium, and used that to build this new Bailey Brayton Stadium. In his time at Washington State University in 1980, Tom was a all-conference player he went six and four with a 3.62 era as a junior and he didn't get drafted that year which is a little bit odd considering that he was clearly already on some major league teams radars but he did sign as a free agent after that junior year at the time tom said that eight teams were after him but he chose to sign with the dodgers because they gave him the best deal tom immediately goes to double a he was really big. He was 6'5", 224, as we see here. And he immediately came in ready to pitch. 
and was dominant at Double A San Antonio. Yeah, and that leads to the fun fact where he led the Texas League with an 813 winning percentage, going 13 and 3 in 1981. Struck out 96 and only allowed a little bit over one base runner per inning and a 1.80 ERA, which is pretty much domination. And all of those wins came in relief as well. And then the Major League strike happened. In mid-June, the Major Leagues went on strike, but the Minor Leagues continued to play. So it allowed Tom to stay in form, stay in shape. And in August of that year, he was called up for an exhibition game just to fill in the bullpen. And he must have impressed because in the article that I found, it said that he was only called up for that exhibition game. On August 15th, he was called back up and stayed with the team for the rest of the season. This was a really young pitching staff. Tommy Lasorda called called it his kitty core. They had 20-year-old Fernando Valenzuela, who would win the Cy Young and the Rookie of the Year. Steve Howe was the Rookie of the Year the year before. And then they had rookies Alejandro Pena, Dave Stewart, and Tom. Tom came in and his first game pitches a scoreless inning in a loss. And in an interesting note, recently Sabre has allowed members access to newspapers.com. So I have access to all of these small town and smaller (laughs) newspapers like the San Bernardino County Sun. In the article next to the Dodgers article, there's a, a short note about a young man from Rialto, California, who lost the 15 and under U.S. racquetball final in Chicago. And that young man was Jeff Conine. Whoa. Jeff Conine, who would go on to win a couple World Series with the Marlins. As a youngster, he he won an amateur title. He later married a champion racquetball player. So fun things in these in the San Bernardino County Sun in 1981. There may be future dalliances into these other newspapers that are going to extend our oh this is <laughs> get ready folks i think the average the average show length is about to double <laughs> yeah and they're all scanned in decently oh, yeah. but it's you know I, I just got new glasses so this we're testing <laughs> um, so that that was tom's first game jeff conine you know loses the racquetball championship his second game Tom gets a win throwing two scoreless innings. The starter on the opposing team, Hall of Famer Gaylord Perry, who's 42 years old, twice Tom's age. So Tom, you know, it's pretty remarkable. He pitches most of a double-A season, his first professional season, and then straight to the pros, straight to a competitive team. He appeared 17 times for the Dodgers, and this Dodgers team was good. Under Tommy Lasorda, they had 90 wins in three of the previous four seasons, but no World Series titles. Tom was 3-1 and one with a 3.81 ERA. He held the opposition scoreless in 11 of 17 outings, but a few difficult innings spoiled that ERA. We haven't really gotten into this in previous episodes, David. You know, the Dodgers end up making the playoffs. How did that end up working out with the strike coming in the middle of it? When the strike happened on June 11th, L.A. was in first place in the NL West, a half game ahead of the Reds. For being in first place for the first half of the season, they earned a spot in the playoffs. They would play in the first round against the team that finished first for the second half of the season. That was the Houston Astros. L.A. was 
only one game over 500 in the second half of the season. So the team with the best record in the NL West for the combined season was Cincinnati, but they were second in both halves. So they didn't get a spot in the playoffs. Instead, it's LA versus Houston. Barely seems fair, but I guess it's the best of the bad options. It must have been an agreement before they got the season restarted because LA was a half game ahead of the Reds because they played an extra game. So unfortunate for the Reds, fortunate for LA, fortunate for Tom, who as a rookie gets to play in the playoffs. He has a weird 1981 playoffs. So in this 1981 playoffs, Tom pitches in four games and gives up zero runs. So it seems like a pretty good playoff for Tom. Yeah, David, it looks like the first one he comes in in the 11th inning, he gets a strikeout and then gives up a single, which gives the Astros the win. So no earned run and gets a, and that doesn't get a loss. That was his only appearance in the divisional playoffs. And then in the NLCS, one appearance in game two, gives up a couple hits, gets pulled after getting one out, and the Dodgers end up getting out of the inning and win the series. So barely an appearance, and then pitches two games in the World Series, three scoreless innings at Yankee Stadium and a loss in game one, and then game four, two unearned runs and a win. So just a hodgepodge of different appearances, but for a rookie, you know, four playoff appearances is pretty great. And the Dodgers win the World Series. Yeah, so he gets that World Series ring. He gave up six hits in five and two-thirds innings, but he didn't give up an earned run. Also an odd World Series because there were three co-MVPs. Pedro Guerrero, Ron Say, and Steve Yeager were the co-MVPs of this Dodgers World Series team. That's just dumb. (laughs) Come on. I think you got to go to a second round of voting. You need instant runoff voting or yeah you have ranked choice ranked MVP choice voting. or proportional representation i mean one one way or the other well only one of those guys was in the wax pack book so i i give it to steve yeager who seemed like a nice enough guy and when he talked to brad belukjan perfect tiebreaker would not have been possible in 1981 it being almost 40 <laughs> years before the book is written but I think I'm with you, David. That's that's a good way to say Steve Yeager, the, the deserving MVP of the 1981 World Series. Going into 1982, Tom starts out at AAA Albuquerque. So he's the last man cut out of spring training. But he's back on the team by late April. And in these first couple seasons, Tom establishes himself in the bullpen in 82, 55 games, nine saves, 2.71 ERA. And then he was even better in 1983. The first half of that 83 season, Tom was basically only pitching in in losses. The team was 10 and 22 in his first 32 appearances. Steve Howe was the established closer for the team, but in 1983, he's dealing with drug issues, checked into rehab, dealt with some suspensions that season. And so in the second half of the season, Tom had much better opportunities and more save opportunities. The team was 22-11 and 11 in his last 33, so basically flipped that record on its head. And he got 10 saves and was part of a team that won the NL West. Ends up with a record that season of 8-3 and three with 11 saves and a 1.90 ERA and opponents hitting 170 against him, which is ridiculous. 
it, a point yeah. eight eight seven whip. That's stupid. <laughs> His the batting average against in the nineteen eighties. This was the lowest average allowed by a pitcher with more than sixty games pitched. And this was by far the best season of Tom's career. He was worth three point five wins above replacement, which was fourth best on the Dodgers. Pretty good for a replacement closer who was doing kind of mop up duty the first half of the season. Yeah, who's 22 years old. So an amazing year for him in 1983, the best of his career. And he continues his postseason run of a 0.00 ERA, two more appearances, earning a save in the only game that the Dodgers ended up winning in the NLCS. And they were bounced out by the Phillies. Yep, through six games in his playoff career at this point, zero earned runs. It can it can only continue to be good in the playoffs for Tom, right? <laughs> 1984, he doesn't appear in quite as many games. He misses some time. He only pitches in 33 games. He has some arm pain and kidney stones. Ooh. In an article that I read about Tom, his pain from the kidney stones was so bad that he passed out swallowed his tongue, and stopped breathing. Luckily for Tom, a scout named Charlie Metro, which definitely sounds like a pseudonym, was nearby (laughs) and performed CPR and saved Tom's life. That's amazing. Good job, Charlie. Yeah, Charlie Metro, you know, we love to give at least a moment of respect for old-timey scouts. Charlie was born in Nantiglow, Pennsylvania, and that might be the best name of a town that we've had on here. Nantiglow is Welsh, Nant, and then the letter Y, glow, meaning the ravine or brook of coal. So Charlie <laughs> Metro lovely... of, of Nantiglow, Pennsylvania. What a lovely name for a very disgusting thing. <laughs> a river of coal. That's true. That is true. And so Tom missed a lot of time in 1984 between his arm pain and his terrible kidney stones missed a lot of august and september he ended up with 11 saves 2.47 era 1985 another decent year for tom and the dodgers the stat line again looks good 2.71 era 19 saves that was his career high but david the numbers don't tell the whole story here because 1985 was a very big season for tom the playoffs in 1985 had two moments which are probably what Tom is best known for, at least among Dodgers and probably Cardinals fans. In game one, Tom gets a save. Everything's going fine. Dodgers get the win in game two. Cardinals tie the series, winning games three and four. We go to game five at Bush Stadium. Game is tied two to two, one out in the bottom of the ninth inning. And Ozzie Smith comes to the plate ozzy smith switch hitter he had 13 home runs in his career at this point all of them from the right side of the plate as tom is a right-handed pitcher ozzy's batting lefty 3,000 left-handed at bats without a home run and jack buck with the call and a runner at third nobody out in the first and didn't score second and third one out in the second and didn't score Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run, and the Cardinals have won the game. 
and unfortunately for Tom, Jack Buck with the iconic go crazy folks call, a real tough loss for Tom. And Tom has said since, like, you know, it was just a fluke. There's nothing really that he could do. Ozzy hit the pitch and, and it went out of the park. Two days later, game six, Tom comes out in the seventh inning with the game tied four to four. In the eighth, the Dodgers take the lead five to four. So Tom's in line for a win. And a win takes this series to game seven. He gives up a single to Willie McGee, walks Ozzie Smith. Tommy Herr grounds into a fielder's choice, moving the runners along, second and third, with two outs. In this video, you can see Tom is just sweaty. <laughs> He's, he's a big man. Also, Tom's nickname was Buffalo Head. And you see Tom rubbing his large head, very sweaty. Jack Clark comes to the plate, two outs, first base is open. So the announcer, Vince Scully, is saying, Lasorda is saying, do we walk him and pitch to that blank, blank Van Slyke? And they decide to pitch to Jack Clark. Mike Sosha even goes out to the mound to talk to Tom. They later said that, that that was to allow the shadows to move closer to home plate to maybe mask a little bit of what Tom was doing, maybe block a little bit of Jack Clark's view. In the seventh inning, Niedenfuhrer had struck out Clark. He had opened with sliders and then went with a fastball to get the strikeout. But this time he opens with a fastball and Clark says he's looking for a first pitch fastball and blasts it to deep left. He knew it was out as soon as it hit the bat. He turns and looks at the bench and slowly, slowly, slowly makes his way to first. And this home run trot is just a dagger. Yeah, Jack Clark. I mean, Jack Clark had bad knees, so maybe that was just as fast as he could run. But he took every... Every second of that trot around the bases. The Cardinals closed the game out 1-2-3 in the ninth to go to the World Series. As we talked about in the John Tudor episode, it didn't end great for them. But this game did not end great for Tom. So a terrible way to end a season. That is crushing. That is really crushing. And a lot of Dodgers fans blamed Tommy Lasorda and said he should have walked Jack Clark. But Van Slyke was a left-handed hitter. So do you want a righty versus lefty matchup? For his part, Tommy Lasorda was devastated after the game. And reports say that he was in tears. And he he told his team, win with pride, lose with dignity. And Tom Niedenfuhrer did that. He went out, talked to the press, said, I wish I could have done better. I didn't. But just because I didn't do my job doesn't mean I should keep you guys from doing yours. And so he sat and talked to the reporters. Uh, Funny note, he said, the only way that thing would have stayed in the park was if it had hit the Goodyear blimp and dropped straight down. (laughs) Yeah, there was no doubt about it. Real heartbreaking way to end 1985. 1986, not as good of a year for Tom. Only 11 saves and an ERA of 3.71. But he starts an acting career. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) He was in Shelley Duvall's Tall Tales and Legends. I've got to watch this. It's on Facebook. You can watch it. I did not watch the full 52 minutes of this. Oh, no. But I watched part of it. I I will share it on the Facebook page. So if you you aren't one of the hundreds of fans of the 1988 Tops Facebook 
group. This is your chance, folks. This is your incentive to join the Facebook group. Tom played Flynn in this. I don't think he had a line. I think he was just one of the guys on the bench. Also, one of the guys was Jay Johnstone. R.I.P. Jay Johnstone, great prankster of Major League Baseball. And who would play the mighty Casey? You know, when I think of 80s actors and who would play the the greatest slugger, I think of Elliot Gould. (laughs) (laughs) Ross from Friends' dad, Elliot Gould. Also included Bob Euchre, Howard Cosell, and Carol Kane. This is an all-star cast. It was written by Andy Borowitz. Of the satirical Borowitz Report, creator of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I can't recommend watching the whole thing. It's pretty boring. But I will share it. I'll share it. Please give it a like on Facebook. (laughs) So checking Tom's IMDb profile, we see that this is the only acting role. He does have credits for 1981 World Series playing self. (laughs) (laughs) Does it have 1985 NLCS playing goat? Yeah, it should. It should. So in Tom's personal life around this time, he was dating an actress, Judy Landers. Judy's sister, Audrey, was an actress who played Afton Cooper on Dallas and was in Chorus Mm -hmm. Line. Judy, for her part, was in Knight Rider and Alf and BJ and the Bear and Love Boat and... As this show, Matt, is one of your favorites, she was a, a guest on the Match Game. Oh, yeah. And the Alan Thicke show. Yeah, these are, these are good roles. These are good, solid roles. So, yeah. And they, they end up getting married in 1987. So, it's a good year for Tom. And they would later go on to have two daughters, Christy and Lindsay Landers. Christy was the subject of a My Super Sweet 16 episode in the mid-2000s. Uh, Bubba Sparks was involved. It's a terrible footnote. <laughs> this is a show of terrible footnotes. That's true. It's kind of our thing. So a good year for Tom's personal life, I should say, but also a close of a chapter for his baseball career as he ends up getting traded. And that's the this way to the clubhouse that Tom was traded by the Dodgers to the Orioles in exchange for Brad Havens and John Shelby, May 22nd of 1987. John Joe Shelby? John Joe Shelby. Brad Havens pitched a little bit for the Dodgers in 1987 and was released in 88. Tom did play a role in the 88 World Series champs by being traded for John Shelby. John Shelby played in every game of the playoffs and World Series for that very injured Dodgers team. Unfortunately for Tom, moving to the American League, he had a rough time in Baltimore. He said that the first thing he noticed was as he walked into Memorial Stadium down the line, it was 309 compared to 330 in Dodger Stadium. He also said it's a big difference to throw to Don Baylor or Paul Molitor instead of a pitcher. Oh, yes. (laughs) And his stats show (laughs) the batting average for batters against Tom, went from 220 in the National League up to 267 in the AL. And he had a much higher than normal for Tom ERA at 499. And it was a rough year for pitchers all around, but you can see a marked difference on this card in Tom's performance. Going into 1988, he does bounce back a bit. 3.51 ERA is 
better than the average for the league and certainly better than the year before that for him. But it's a year with the Orioles who, as we've mentioned in previous episodes or in last place in 1988, he ends up being granted free agency. And he signs as a free agent with Seattle. And in the preseason, an article in the Sporting News said that along with the Hackman signing for Seattle and Burt Blylevin signing with the Angels, this is one of the worst free agent signings. Hackman, as we remember, went on to be an all-star. Burt was fourth in Cy Young voting. Tom <laughs> didn't do so hot. Yeah, yeah. He pitched in 25 games and had a 6.69 ERA. Not no nice. wins, no saves, three save opportunities, and he blew all of them. His strikeouts at this point are way down, 3.7 per nine innings, down from over eight during some of his better seasons in L.A. Batters hitting 309 against Tom. He was uh, sent down to AAA and initially rejected that assignment. He later relented and tried to get his form back in AAA. And after the season, he put his house on the market, even though he had signed a two-year deal with the Mariners. He said he knew he wouldn't be back after the worst year of his career in baseball. So in 1990, to try to shake things up, he attempts something that we haven't really, it's a tactic we haven't really seen another pitcher try. And that was to try to grow a giant beard and hope that that would help his, help his fortunes. He said it worked for Jeff Reardon. And it looks okay if you look at some of his cards in 1990. Well, how did it go for him? Uh, not great. He was released <laughs> April 6th. But the oh, next no. week, he signed a AAA deal with the Cardinals. He got called up in 1990 and, and pitched pretty decent. His record wouldn't necessarily reflect that. He was 0-6, but he had a 3.46 ERA in 52 appearances, and his ERA plus was above average. Ends up not enough. He He's not re-signed and ends up hanging it up after the 1990 season. How about in retirement? At this point, in 1990, he had two young kids. His first child was born in 1989, and he was able to spend more time with his kids and his wife. But also in 1990, he got a big payout. The owners were ruled to be in violation of the league's collective bargaining agreement by conspiring to restrict player movement, something that we'll talk about more probably in the Tim Raines episode. And the owners agreed to pay the players a total of $280 million to settle that. Needenfuhrer received around $3 million from that settlement to pay him for wages oh. that he lost due to collusion that prevented him from signing more lucrative contracts. So he got a $3 wow. million dollar payout in 1990. But he also said that he didn't necessarily want to retire in 1990. He says there was more to it. He had proven that he was an above average pitcher and could probably pitch for another team. But he said that the owners didn't want to sign him. And he said that this was further owner collusion to just lock him out of the game. And interestingly, he was asked about his thoughts on a shortened 2020 season. He encouraged players to be wary of ownership. And at some point in 2020, owners were talking about significant pay cuts for players. And he was saying, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. You should be concerned about the owners trying to get too much out of this and trying to take pay cuts. Because Tom had been through that and been through collusion of owners, 
acting in concert to drive down prices of free agents. So aside from the like random article asking Tom his opinion on global pandemics, he's also often asked about those two infamous home runs, and he's pretty candid in his answers. He said, looking back on it, it's a very proud feeling that your manager had enough confidence in you to be the guy he put in that situation. But when it happened, all I can remember is you let the team down. And he also said a reliever is like a kicker in football. No one ever notices you until you make a mistake. And I'm sure it's no consolation to Tom, but while he's remembered for those two home runs that he gave up in that 1985 NLCS, maybe he's lucky that in 1988, the Dodgers won the World Series. He won a World Series in 1981. So it's not like they had the Red Sox, the curse of the Bambino, or, you know, this wasn't a Bill Buckner situation. It was a pitch that missed its target, and Jack Clark just (laughs) did what Jack Clark does. And as Tom put it, he got paid to hit, I got paid to pitch. Great moments in baseball usually are made by two people, not one. That's right. They're they're great for one person and not great for the other, and that's kind of the nature of sports. Looking back on a career that has multiple playoff appearances, that has a World Series ring, there are plenty of players that we've talked about that have not had that level of success. So well done, Tom Niedenfuhrer. Thank you, David. And thank you to you at home. If you are Gordon Shumway from the planet Melmac, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.